1: Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.
2: Back in Black. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town.
3: I have wanted to do this case for a very long time, but it is such a part of my own LA history and is so intimidating in some ways because it's so gigantic that I kind of leaned away from it. But Jason just went to a bunch of locations and was kind of hinting at the idea that maybe we should do it. So here we are today talking about the iconic LA still unsolved crime of the Black Dahlia murder,
2: this is is the one. This is the big this one. Is the big one. It's LA's probably oldest unsolved cold case, and mm-hmm. probably when you talk about true crime, I mean, this is probably up there yes. with with all the, with all the big ones.
3: It really is, and again, there's so much to it. It's not even just that it's an unsolved because really, on paper, it's like, oh, a girl's a young a young woman is murdered and we can't find the killer and it's LA and it could be anybody, but there's so many strange nooks and crannies to this case. There's so much Hollywood to it with like baked inside of it. You know, there's like youth and beauty and ambition, but really the big thing about this case is that it is uh, the side. It's like the dark face of Los Angeles. And I think that's why people are so obsessed with it. It's very stereotypical to be like, Oh, you know, this city, takes people and chews them up and spits them out or entertainment rejects them. This is the case that a lot of that was foundational to it is the darker part of the dream of entertainment of stardom of glamor. It really manipulates that. And this is what I mean, really creates the bad, like the, the bad reputation that LA has in terms of, you know, what you will do to be famous, you know, all the things like what you will put yourself out there for. And so much of that has taken over the idea of the Black Dahlia murder, when in actuality, the facts are much different. And, and the person who is Elizabeth Short is still a mystery. So all of this presupposition can be put on this case in a way that we'll never really know what is right and what is wrong.
2: And apparently people are not Done talking about it or associating with it. And like you said, it's, you know, Hollywood itself now, you know, will make a movie or another Mm -hmm. book or there's another blog post and and it probably will never truly be solved. Although there are claims that it is solved. For the most
3: part, it is solved, but we won't get the closure of a formalized solution to this case or, or solving of her murder. Plus,
2: the, 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 the it's the photos considering it's 1947 Oof. the amount of photos mm-hmm. is pretty astounding which i've noticed when i was doing the filming locations mm-hmm. and when you run across the crime scene photos mm-hmm. it's extremely jarring no matter how many times you've seen it it's extremely gruesome yeah and it, it's it's tough especially when i went to lamar park and was looking for photos com- comparing the the what it looks like now to then and yeah you get a lot of uh, crime scene
3: yeah, photos. They're are very tough. available on the internet. So if you're looking for this case, like I maybe three or four clicks, you can find these very graphic photos. So I'm uh, warning you of that. And it's also really hard too because they will a lot of the photos will will juxtapose her and her mugshot, which is also like a really big part of the photographic evidence and historical elements of the case. But let's start from the beginning because even before murder, it's, there's so much happening. So she was born Elizabeth Short on July 29th, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts, the third of five daughters of Cleo and Phoebe May Short. Cleo Short made a living designing and building miniature golf courses. Around 1927, the Short family relocated to Portland and then went back to Massachusetts to a Boston suburb about a year later. Of course, the Great Depression hit in 1929 and Cleo abandoned his wife and his five daughters. He then proceeded to fake his suicide, leaving his empty car near a bridge, leading authorities to believe he had jumped into the river below. This will also happen again. This is Cleo's move. Phoebe was left to deal with the Depression, five young girls on her own. She worked multiple jobs, but most of their money came from public assistance. One day, Phoebe received a letter from Cleo, who had moved to California. He apologized and told Phoebe that he wanted to come home to her. However, she was like, do not ever talk to me again. I never want to see you. In 1930, Cleo's car was found abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge, and it was assumed that he had committed suicide by jumping into the river. Again, as a teenager, Elizabeth always had bad bronchitis and severe asthma attacks, she underwent lung surgery at age 15, after which doctors suggested she relocate to a milder climate during the winter months to prevent further problems. Short's mother sent her to spend winters in Miami, Florida, with some family friends. During the next three years, Short lived in Florida during the winter months and spent the rest of the year in Medford with her mother and sisters. Now, she would go back and forth from Florida to Massachusetts to California. It kind of all start. She she laid this foundation of being kind of this wandering character, feeling at home pretty much anywhere, and maybe a little bit too at home, as some authors talk about. But she would do these things. And and again, it kind of – all of the people that talk about her say that she was kind of quiet, that she would spend a lot of time on her makeup and herself and would try her best to assimilate to wherever she was. So here's some testimonials from her Medford classmates. She was always friendly, never at a loss for words. And it wasn't just that she was so pretty. There are a lot of pretty girls. There was something different. She was someone you liked to watch, the kind of girls boys might sneak looks at, but would get tongue-tied if she spoke to you. And the walk of hers. It wasn't put on. She always walked that way, even in junior high. I always thought that if she had a glass of water on her head, she wouldn't spill a drop. That was Bob Passios, a neighbor and classmate of hers. Dottie, Elizabeth's sister, Betty, and I were going to be movie stars. We were all entranced with movie stars, starstruck. Spent hours talking about movie stars, about going to Hollywood. We performed using the shorts front porch as a stage. Every Friday, as soon as the song Sheets came out, we pool our money, get the latest sheets, and spend hours singing. Betty imitated Deanna Durbin, walked like her, talked like her, and had eyes and sang like her. That's Eleanor Kurtz, a friend of the family's. And then finally, this is Emma Passios, another presumably related to Bob, her hair was very dark black. She liked to be admired. No one had bad thoughts about her. I just liked her. Once you saw Betty Short, you couldn't forget her. Elizabeth Short dropped out of high school as a sophomore, which means there were a couple of years that she didn't go to school. I'm not, I can't figure out what she did in that time. Presumably she was in pretty bad health and just kind of floating around at her mom's place, at her friends in Florida. But in late 1942, Short's mother received a letter of apology from her twice-presumed dead husband, which revealed that he was, in fact, alive, and started a new life in California, for real for real this time. In December, at age 18, Short relocated to Viejo to live with her father, whom she had not seen since she was six years old. At the time, he was working at the nearby Mare Island Naval Shipyard on San Francisco Bay, but things quickly became strained. Her father would scold her for her laziness, her poor housekeeping, her dating habits, which would also be a a theme and a a much discussed area of her her life. He eventually kicked her out in mid-1943 and she was forced to fend for herself. She took a job as a cashier at the base exchange at Camp Cook, now Vandenberg Air Force Base, near Lompoc, living with several friends and briefly dating an army sergeant who she moved in with who reportedly abused her. The servicemen quickly noticed her, and she won the title of Camp Cutie of Camp Cook in a beauty contest. She was emotionally vulnerable, and at the time, people say that she really wanted to get married. Again, she was 19 years old, pretty normal, kind of average sentiment for a person that age at the time, and her track record of instability, all all the authors that I really looked into said that she wanted a normal life, you know, a home, a person, a partner that she could trust. And she was desperate to have that, but she was not a very good kind of reader of people. She had a lot of really strained relationships that really started ramping up about this time. Word spread that Elizabeth was not an easy girl on the base, which kept her at home instead of on dates most nights. In 1943, she became uncomfortable at Camp Cook and left to stay with another friend who lived near Santa Barbara. She was arrested on September 23rd, 1943 for underage drinking at a local bar. This is the iconic mugshot of hers, which there's there's two photos next to each other. She looks, I mean, kind of buzzed on it. She looks like a teenager who is buzzed. And this is something that they juxtapose her, the photos from her, the crime scene, her the site where her body was found all the time, which is very, very disturbing because in the photos, she looks like a kid, like a kid who's out partying, you know? And she, you know, she's very made up. She's got that iconic. She's got these like really dark curls, really light skin, but she looks like she got in trouble like many teenagers do. The juvenile authorities sent her back to Medford, but she instead went to Florida, then came back to California, this time to where she really wanted to be in Hollywood. In Los Angeles, Elizabeth met a pilot named Lieutenant Gordon Fickling and fell in love. He was really clean cut. She was stable, kind of the guy that she was searching for and she was very eager to marry him. But her plans were halted when fickling was shipped out to Europe. So she was again alone. She took some modeling jobs in LA, but not really anything came of it. She went back east again to spend the holidays in Medford before again, going to Miami, she began dating servicemen, marriage still a huge part of what she wanted and what she hoped she would get, and fell in love with another military man, a pilot this time, his name was Major Matt Gordon. He, She really has a type too, if you look at the people that she's dated or she's photographed with, they're really pretty like handsome, clean cut, very military skewing guys. It may just be just the places that she hung out, which is bases for the most part, but he looks a lot like Gordon Fickling, honestly. He proposed marriage and she said yes. They were going to get married when he got back from India. However, he was killed in action on August 10th, 1945, less than a week before the surrender of Japan that ended, that would end the war. Elizabeth had a period of mourning where she told others that actually he had been her husband and that they had a baby that had died in childbirth. But eventually, she began to recover and attempted to return to her old life and her old dreams of being a star in Hollywood. So she started contacting her friends back in California. One of these friends was her ex, Gordon Fickling, who was back in the States. She began to write him, and soon they were on again. Some say she moved back to Hollywood before she met up with him in Long Beach, where he was working, but it may have been the other way around. I couldn't actually find a definitive answer for this. But in late 1946, she was seen working and living in Hollywood. Known to frequent the Frolic Room, Boardners, old Hollywood haunts. These are all places that are really historic on Hollywood Boulevard. A lot of noir um, writers would hang out there. A lot of Hollywood actors. A lot of online
2: dating has happened there. Uh, yeah, I had a Frolic Room date. Oh yeah, yeah, I also
3: had a Frolic Room date. It's yeah, it's a place that we both we both used to hang out yeah. and, and perform. You can see
2: the, a picture of the Frolic Room in my book, oh, Abandoned Los Angeles, Neon and Beyond. Go. So it, there's a connection. But it's it's it, when you look at it, it's it's one of those iconic mm-hmm. places. is a little less, even though, I mean, to us it is. Yeah. But The Frolic Room is definitely, definitely used in so many movies about totally. LA, especially and, noir-based.
3: Yeah, and murders that. have happened at both places. Just, they have so much history to them. When you talk about Hollywood having history, this case is so much a part of it, these places, and it all kind of snowballs into this pretty dark Hollywood lore. Now, again, it's not, this is a part of her story where it's like, was she a partier? Was she not? She was seen out and about, but kind of was she? It's hard to know. You're taking a lot of this stuff from testimony from authors who already are having secondhand accounts. And then when I'm getting the accounts, you know, who knows? Again, who knows? So it's, it's her case. And this is really piecing together a lot of different stories, a lot of different points of view, a lot of different agendas, because a lot of people have agendas with this case, because they want it to be something that maybe it's it's not. But I'm going to present as we go along, all the different hypotheses, and you can kind of decide for yourself. So she was working as a waitress. And they said that she rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens on Hollywood Boulevard. Do you know where that is?
2: I do. I was there recently, there was a holding area for mm-hmm. a thing I was working on was yeah. behind Florentine Gardens.
3: Totally. It is still I'm not Yeah, is it just like a Space for rent, kind of thing. Yeah, so there's a
2: big parking lot behind it. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if the building that was back there is still back there, but Florentine Gardens is still
3: there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can see so many places where she was lived, was found, and that's another really interesting part of this case. It, It still lives in these places. They're not gone. You can experience it. So she agreed to join Fickling in Long Beach permanently at some point, but this is when things. This is even more like the patchwork nature of this case. She didn't go to Long Beach. Instead, she left Los Angeles on December 8th, 1946 to take a bus to San Diego. Before she left, she had been worried about something. Something was on her mind. Mark Hansen, who harbored Elizabeth for a little bit, said, I didn't see her, but she was sitting there one night when I came home with Ann about 5.30, sitting and crying and saying she had to get out of there. She was crying about being scared. One thing and another, I don't know. So she was pretty distressed at this point and went to san diego while she was there she befriended a young woman named dorothy french dorothy was a counter girl at the aztec theater when they first met and had found elizabeth sleeping in one of the seats after a show in one of her bouts of homelessness between homes who knows
2: she seemed to be a bit of a drifter from what mm-hmm. i what i saw and and pretty much what the, what the timeline and chronology is of where she was seemed to that it was kind of her jam she was yeah. settled You know, settled wouldn't be a word I would use to describe her. No,
3: honestly, like any point in her life, for sure. Elizabeth told Dorothy that she left Hollywood because finding a job as an actress was difficult with the strikes that were going on at the time. Dorothy felt sorry for her and offered her a place to stay at her mother's home for a few days. These few days turned into a month. And this is the part of John Gilmore's book, Severed, which is some some of the information that I got from this episode came from that but it's also really sensationalized but this is one moment that really stood out for me because she would stay there she was clearly overstaying her welcome but it was a couch that she could live on but he talks about her getting up and spending hours in front of a mirror uh, applying her makeup and her doing her hair and doing you know finding these meticulous outfits and making sure that everything was perfect and just so much makeup and so much kind of beautification or changing herself into what she perceived of what people wanted of her. And even like the smell of her perfume. And there's a couple quotes in the book, too, that talk about just the living room reeking of her perfume and her wanting. She wasn't even in Los Angeles at the time. She was in San Diego staying on a friend's couch. And it really shows what perhaps mattered to her. Now, this book is very problematic, too, because it is very sensationalized. And the theories in this book are not right. I'll say it. They've been disputed quite a bit and I wouldn't trust it, but it is such a colorful recounting of her life that it's entertaining. I'll say there are some other books that are, that are much more grounded, but that of this book really stands out to me as being true from what I've read, from what I've researched of who she was. So she obviously didn't contribute much to the family and apparently continued with late night partying and dating And again, it's hard to know if this was real or if this wasn't real. I think from the research that I've done, she – a big thing about her was was belonging and and being out and being immersed in Hollywood and the world. And she loved people, but she never really felt like she was a part of it. She never really felt like an insider or had a group of friends. So I think that was part of it. I don't think she was a huge, like, partier. We don't really get any – recounts of her being you know belligerent or you know aside from like underage drinking like super drunk or having any problems there's lots and lots of testimonies of people who grew up around and knew her not so much in these later years that are super trustworthy i would say but before saying that she was like fairly straight-laced but think about putting a straight-laced person into this context someone who's considered very attractive who wanted to be in hollywood of course she would be going out of course she would be meeting friends she was You know, 21. So that I think really sticks with me. And again, her being not maybe the best judge of character, maybe being a little bit naive, a little bit too trusting. Because one man she met in San Diego was the man by the name of Robert Red Manley, a 25 year old salesman from LA who had a pregnant wife back at home. He admitted in testimonies that he was attracted to Elizabeth, but he said that he never ever slept with her. He said the two of them saw each other on and off for a couple weeks, and then she asked him for a ride back to Hollywood. He agreed and picked her up from the French household on January 8th, 1947. He paid for her hotel room for the night and went to a party with her. Then the two of them returned to the hotel. He said he slept on the bed and she slept in a chair. Sure. Okay. Manley had an appointment in the morning of January 9th and returned to the hotel to pick Elizabeth up around noon. She told him that she was returning to Massachusetts, but first needed to, according to her, meet her married sister at the Biltmore Hotel in Hollywood, which is interesting because the Biltmore is not in Hollywood. It's actually in downtown Los Angeles. She said her sister was visiting from Boston, which was a lie. Manley gave her a ride to the hotel and and drove off immediately after he didn't see that she met her sister. And again, this is his testimony. He didn't stop and wait for anything. So he says that when he saw her last, she was making phone calls in the hotel lobby. Manly and the hotel employees were the last people, presumably, to see Elizabeth Short alive. Though some accounts she was seen maybe by patrons at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge at 754 South Olive Street, which is almost across the street from the hotel. And that's not there anymore, unfortunately. But I also don't think that that is true. Again, I don't think she would go... If she was this distressed, if she was kind of had this agenda that we didn't know about, I don't think she would go to a place that she didn't know anybody alone, which was not really her jam, and hang out and have a drink. It doesn't seem right. She was missing for six days from the Biltmore Hotel before her body was found in a vacant lot on the morning of January 15th, 1947. And just before we get into that, you can go to the Biltmore and stand exactly where she was last seen. And it is so interesting you've taken us on tours there yeah yeah it's it's a beautiful hotel it's such a symbol of los angeles there's so much history there aside from this but you can go to the entryway and i maybe i can put a picture up on our instagram and and be there and it's again it's talk about being tied to a city and being tied to this unsolved case it's a really it's a trip i will say so she was missing her body was found on January fifteenth, nineteen forty-seven, on a cold, overcast morning in Los Angeles. Betty Bursinger, who was a local housewife, left her home on Norton Avenue in Le Merit Park, which is, if you don't know LA, it's kind of by USC. Um, it's still pretty suburban uh it's not super developed it's is it south central technically maybe it is technically i think it's technically south Mm -hmm. central
2: because i I was there you were
3: just there yeah i
2: was just there and you could see that and other places that i went at youtube.com slash jason horton or click the link in the show notes and you can see all of that
3: yeah and it, it is it's it's very it's an ominous place because if you look at the pictures which i do not suggest they're just vacant lots So she left her home. She was going to a shoe repair shop with her three-year-old daughter. Around 10 a.m., Betty was walking along the sidewalk, and she noticed something white in the grass. She didn't think much of it at first. And this is like a very famous quote of hers, because she got a ton of press. There's so much info. I mean, she doesn't have a lot of info. She just found this body. But she thought that someone had thrown away pieces of a store mannequin, which... Is also, really, eerie. when you see the photos, you mm-hmm. you'll know what that means. It's, yeah,
2: it's well, I mean, I'm not saying when you will, I, I highly suggest doing that with extreme caution because mm-hmm. I did, I just happened upon them again, and it was, mm-hmm. it was. I, 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 I mean, I, I'm also very skittish and easily jarred,
3: mm-hmm. yeah. And they are, they're jarring and they look otherworldly, um, especially the
2: black and white aspect of them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh. I imagine a lot of horror movies, especially in like the 60s and 70s or even the 50s
3: mm-hmm.
2: might have gotten a, a inspired by these photos unfortunately.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oof, so she discovered these pieces of a human being screamed, grabbed her daughter, ran to the nearest house to call the police. Within minutes, officers arrived. The first officers who who discovered the body from the police were Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald. When they saw her, they confirmed Betty Bursinger's story and called for backup. The Los Angeles Police Department noted that the woman's body seemed to have been posed. She was on her back with her arms raised over her shoulders. There were cuts and abrasions across her body. Her mouth had been sliced to extend her smile from ear to ear. It's known as the Glasgow smile, which is a very violent practice that originated. The Joker
2: in- would be a, a mm-hmm. classic modern version of that. Totally, I guess.
3: totally. And to see that in a, a someone who's not the Joker, to see that in just a face is really horrifying. The bottom half of her body was a foot away from the top half. Her legs were spread. There were lacerations around her abdomen. Her intestines were tucked neatly which is a horrifying detail under her body. Investigators believe that she had been tied down and tortured for several days due to rope marks on her wrist, ankles, neck. This is pretty disputed that she was tortured. A lot of this stuff really happened posthumously, so it's really probably not super likely. But this is again something that people are like, how much, how much of the torture happened before she died? How much ap- happened after? I, I tend to think that like most, and mercifully, I hope that most of it happened after.
2: And there's no blood. There was no blood found. Exactly.
3: Yeah, Uh, Yeah, after... There was no absolutely no blood, and this is a huge detail of the case because the artful nature... There was no blood in her body. There was no blood under her body. The detectives saw a heel print on the ground amid tire tracks. Hard to know if this is connected to the case or not, and a cement sack containing watery blood also found kind of nearby. They determined that she was killed elsewhere, bled out meticulously, and then put in the vacant lot at some point the night before. Detective Lieutenant Jesse Haskins described the condition of the body when he first arrived at the crime scene. The body was lying with the head towards the north, the feet towards the south. The left leg was five inches west of the sidewalk. The body was lying face up and the severed part was jogged over about 10 inches. The upper half of the body from the lower half. There was a tire track right up against the curbing, and there was what appeared to be a possible bloody heel mark in the tire mark. And on the curbing, which is now very low, there was one spot of blood. And there was an empty paper cement sack lying in the driveway, and it also had a spot of blood on it. It had been brought here from some other location. The body was clean. It appeared to have been washed. But again, like, clinical description horrifying in reality. While the LAPD were no stranger to homicides, the nature of this case was very cruel and talked about... Again, all over, which is something that has helped and hurt the case over the years. Detective Sergeant Henry Hansen and Detective Finnis Brown were assigned to the case. And when they arrived at the crime scene, it was teeming with reporters, photographers, onlookers. Of course, in classic high profile, true crime style, civilians and officers were just tromping all around the crime scene, destroying evidence possible evidence left and right. While the detectives investigated the crime scene, the body was transported to Los Angeles County morgue. The LAPD lifted fingerprints and sent them to FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. However, severe winter storms at the time had delayed the identification request for up to a week. So think about sending physically sending copies of fingerprints to Washington, D.C., them being delayed. This high-profile case, nobody knows who this person is, and they can't figure it out because storms. Warden Woolard, who is the assisting managing editor of the Herald Express, wanted to help the LAPD in their investigation and probably wanted a little like firsthand news coverage for himself. The newspaper had recently purchased a new technology called the sound photo machine. He, Woolard believed he could use the sound photo equipment to send the women's fingerprints to the FBI, which is again, it's like an early <laughs> like dial up internet type of a thing. When Willard spoke with the LAPD Captain Jack Donahoe about his idea, it was set into motion. The fingerprints were first transmitted to the FBI, but they could not be read. Russ Lapp, a Herald Express photographer, suggested that they reverse the lab process and use the prints as negatives before sending them to the FBI again. Lapp also blew the prints up to eight and a half to 8 by 10 which made them large enough for the FBI specialist to clearly read. With these readable prints, the FBI finally was able to identify this body that was found that everyone is in a frenzy about as 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. As far as they knew, she had last resided in Santa Barbara and had worked as a clerk at Camp Cook. While that all was happening, Short's body was being examined in the coroner's office by Frederick Newbar, the L.A. County coroner. His autopsy report stated that Short was 5 feet 5 inches tall, weighed 115 pounds, and had light blue eyes, brown hair, badly decaying teeth. The body had been cut completely in half by a technique taught in the 1930s called a hemicorporectomy. I hope I said that right. His report noted very little bruising along the incision line, suggesting it had been performed after her death. There were marks in her ankles, wrists, and neck, and irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss on her right breast, Newbar also noted superficial lacerations on the right forearm, left upper arm, lower side of the chest, all over, face to head. There was no sperm present on the body. The killer had washed the body so clean, there really wasn't anything on the body. Newbar noted that Short's anal canal was dilated, suggesting that maybe she was raped. That's really the only evidence of sexual misconduct. There's some reports that say she had like feces in her stomach and stuff like that. That is not true as far as I have researched. There was numerous cuts in a crisscross pattern over her pubic area. Her hair had been Her pubic hair had been removed by hand, which is a very gruesome detail. Again, most of the damage done seemed to have been post-mortem. Thank God. The official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain lacerations of the face. So on that note, I think we should chill out a second, take a break and get back to it after.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: Hi, hello. How are you? Hi. Checking in. Woo! Despite all that, how are you
0: doing?
3: We're doing it.
2: How is everybody? We hope you are well.
3: Yeah, I hope so. I had a gas leak in my home this week, and so I hope I'm well as well.
2: We'll we'll find out.
3: We're going to find out. We're going to find out.
2: We'll We'll see by the end of this episode if you, if, yeah, if, if we I don't make pass it, out
3: in a heap we'll f- we'll figure it out.
2: want to say hello to our patrons mm-hmm. our political leaders mm-hmm. little Jeanette
3: link, hello,
2: Brandon Gaddis, Hi. Ben Forsythe, mm-hmm. Ashley Matson, mm-hmm. our governor mm hmm Still governor.
3: Still governor.
2: Yet to be unseated. Mm-mm. Chris Witt. Hello, Chris. Hello. We're fans of yours. We want to say hello to anyone who's patronizing, any patrons and anyone listening. Thank you. Thank you. We have bonus episodes. Just put up a bonus episode. Mm-hmm. I actually put up, uh, by the time you hear this, it'll already be out, but I put up a, a little, quick little bonus of the video component mm-hmm. to this. So Very exciting. Throwing that in there, but we have, you know, you can... Li- Probably you may have listened to this already without any ads or any of this talking, mm-hmm. and that's part of the Patreon, which is patreon.com slash ghost town pod. Mm-hmm. I was on a podcast called Hear Me Out. Fun. Talking about trying to convince one of the one of the hosts to stay in a haunted house or a haunted hotel.
3: Did you convince him? I think uh, I did a pretty good job. Yeah?
2: But yeah. so It's uh, weird.
3: It's funny having you convince someone to stay in a haunted house.
2: I, I was giving like some pretty like... Selfish reasons uh-huh. to do it: one, content. Hello. Sure,
3: sure, always
2: conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, you're running out of stuff. That's, <laughs> That's right. Great way to converse. Mm-hmm. And I, I just kind of explained why a haunted hotel would be a great place because people go to hotels sometimes for dastardly reasons or to, you know, you don't want to bother people when you, you know, want to do something unfortunate. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have someone else to clean up your mess. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to a hotel sometimes. You're like, I like to have somebody else clean up after yeah, me.
3: Yeah, not me. I go there to read the Bible and get a good night's sleep.
2: Yeah, and, and that is it. That's it. And no funny business. Where can I get a salad with no dressing? <laughs> yeah, dressing that's on the right. side,
3: dressing on the side, please.
2: But it, the podcast is called "Hear Me Out." Check it out. A lot of people have been very supportive of the book, Mm -hmm. which I went to Barnes & Noble today.
3: I saw that. it's in the store. The book is there. That must be so amazing to see.
2: It was really weird, because I always imagined what it would be like, number one, to have a book there. And there's so Mm -hmm. many. And I didn't think we would get the opportunity, because one, I was like, I don't know if it's been, people have been trouble getting it, but Mm -hmm. hopefully it's been picking up, people have been getting it. And... To see it there is a really strange thing. Local interest.
3: Local interest. That makes sense. It and, makes sense to me.
2: And it's right there. If you want to see some pictures, it's on uh, my Instagram, which mm-hmm. is just the Jason Horton. If you want to check out the video component where I visit some of the locations of the Black Dahlia, youtube.com slash Jason Horton, mm-hmm. you can find it in the show notes, a link yeah. in the show notes. Don't
3: you want like a 360 view of this case? Maybe not. But no, if you do... Yeah.
2: Or do you want some 2D version of it like I, I gave?
3: <laughs> a nice 2D, a flattened version that you can take in at will. Ooh. I don't know. I'm not you. You
2: can give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you'd like. Mm-hmm. It'd be cool. Our TikTok is Our going TikTok. off. It is going off. I was... Back at the Wonderland. Oh, Murder my God! House. We're gonna have a little Sharon Tate.
3: Ah, oh, oh, Drive. Oh boy! Oh
2: boy! Already have Hillside Strangler. Oof. So there's a uh, uh, Halloween.
3: I guess we're gonna have to start scenes. doing these episodes because
2: yeah, it's been doing a, a lot of that. I have what do I have coming up next? Uh, where Bugsy Siegel? Yeah, uh, yeah, Delana yeah. Clarkson's house. It was in Beverly Hills where the uh, Spadina uh, Witch House mm-hmm. is. There was over there in Beverly Hills. That's all on. You can find it. I think some of my Instagram. I think it's probably on some of the Ghost Town Pod Instagram. Mm-hmm. But the TikTok Ghost Town Pod people. So a lot of infighting, a little bit. There's, wow. there's a little bit of that in there. But it's 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 you know it's rocking and rolling. That's amazing. In, in the you know the, when I say it's rocking and rolling, you know it's pretty standard. <laughs> it's a pretty boring standard. <laughs> oh, thing. Oh
3: no, that's not true. I mean, to your credit, man. Like TikTok. Is a totally different animal, and the things you get on there versus here or YouTube, Instagram, totally different, different experience. It's great. Well, why don't we get back to the Black Dahlia, the person that you're here to listen about?
2: Because yeah, I feel like we've we there's there's the other side of this, it, which is the you know also the theories and and the, oh, people kind of yeah. not agreeing on you know and it was seventy years old now at this point yeah. And, And, you know, we're still talking about it. We're still talking about it. No one has agreed on anything.
3: No. And again, I think there is a case. I think there is a kind of a decided end to this case or a settling on who most likely did it. But there are a lot of theories and there's a lot of links to other things. And it just gets wilder. So we have found we've identified the body. We've identified how she died But let's talk about the name the Black Dahlia for a second. The Black Dahlia, the name, is widely disputed. We have no real idea where it came from. But it's part of what makes this case so iconic. You think about the Black Dahlia, you're like, oh shit, like this is real. This is going to be sexy. This is going to be murderous. This is going to be kind of a throwback. Like, what does this mean? So according to newspapers, Short received the nickname Black Dahlia from staff and patrons at the Long Beach Drugstore in mid-1946 as a wordplay on the film The Blue Dahlia, which I've never seen, came out in 1946. It's a Raymond Chandler. It's actually his first original screenplay with Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd. It's, you know, very like hard-boiled detective crime film. Some say the media crafted the name because of short-putting dahlias in her hair when she'd get ready for a night out. According to the FBI official website, she received the first part of the nickname from the press for her rumored penchant for sheer black clothes. However, and this is probably the most likely thing, was the media, the newspaper reporters finding a fun, sexy, mysterious name for this case. Herald Express reporter Bevo Means, great name by the way, interviewed shorts acquaintances at the drugstore and had been credited with using or just putting together the name The Black Dahlia and The Black Dahlia Murder. Though reporters Underwood and Jack Smith have been named the creators, we don't know again if she was called The Black Dahlia when she was alive, Dahlia, whatever. Prior to the circulation of the Black Dahlia name, Short's killing had been dubbed the werewolf murder by the Herald Express because it was so violent and brutal. The werewolf murder doesn't have the same ring as the Black Dahlia murder, so... And also, pretty generic for what it is. On January 21st, 1947, a person claiming to be Short's killer placed a phone call to the office of James Richardson, the editor of The Examiner, congratulating Richardson on the newspaper's coverage of the case. Interesting things to congratulate a media outlet on their coverage, because... All of these media outlets, that especially LA ones, were just like so savage in their coverage. There are some, <laughs> some of the newspaper headlines are just you're just like you know this is a human being, you right, you okay, okay, cool.
2: But how much has really changed since then? I mean, when you have things like TMZ and other yeah. sensational, I mean, you know, everyone's just trying to make a living. I get that. That's a but, fair point. That's a fair point. But but they, like you said, they they're human beings and deserve more respect than they they get sometimes. Unfortunately, mm, definitely,
3: definitely. This phone call stated that he planned on eventually turning himself in, but not before allowing police to pursue him further. The caller also told Richardson to expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. Can you imagine? Together, the Herald. Ex- oh yeah. I what was gonna saying? say, what's left? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right? what?
2: I feel like they've, you know, kind of. Mm-hmm. When you say you're gonna send something, it's like I don't want to know what you have and yeah, what I is know, there you're left. Like, to, what's happening? What's left to send? Exactly. And but I believe it. At least and, based on that. Yeah, very true.
3: And her clothes. I mean, like clothes and effects. Really, is what we're getting to here, which are also really creepy in their own right. Together, the Herald Express and LEP worked to identify the victim, but their symbiotic relationship would shift. So, William Randolph, first, we could do a whole episode on him, too. He was the owner of the Herald Express at the time and was obviously very powerful, you know, huge media mogul. And he had this stable of reporters who discovered leads and valuable evidence in Short's case. They were working around the clock on her specifically, even. He was willing to share this information with the LAPD, but of course, for a price. He proposed that the Herald Express would continue investigating clues and would be granted exclusives, and the LAPD would have access to all of the information the reporters uncovered. If you're a journalist, you know how fucked up this is. The LAPD was not really happy with these terms, but he was desperate for information. And because the media was covering this case so salaciously and so persistently, a lot of the tips were going to the newspaper, which is not how it is. Now there's many avenues. We talk about, you know, finding tips online or Reddit or whatever. But like, back then, it's like stuff like there's not with this case, specifically, but there are photos of I forget what case it is, but a newspaper getting like all of these packages and all these letters of tips and things. Um, And so they had this power over the LAPD specifically that that they were able to negotiate getting exclusives in the Black Dahlia case. Wayne Sutton, a Herald Express rewrite guy, was assigned to locate Elizabeth Short's mother, Phoebe Short, in Medford, Massachusetts, to tell her that her daughter had passed away. He found her, but then (laughs) he needed to get more information. So instead of just telling her her daughter had died because he thought that if she was really shaken up, he wouldn't get information. She was told that her daughter won a beauty contest in Los Angeles. Phoebe Short loved to talk about her beautiful daughter and all of her accomplishments and and how great she was. So she was feeding information to Sutton, who was, again, a journalist, kind of reporting under these shady means. And then once he received the information, he just told her that she died, which is such a cruel, cruel thing to do. But even then, Phoebe Short didn't believe him. The LAPD had to contact local Medford police and send... A couple of cops to the short residence to tell her in person before she would accept that her daughter had died.
2: Well, I, mean, I can kind of understand that when you have the first person showing up mm-hmm. saying, "Oh, your daughter won a beauty contest." P.S. No, she didn't. She is mm-hmm. the opposite of that. Uh, I, I probably would be. You know, also you don't want to believe something like that's true. So you yeah. combine those things. It's it's understandable.
3: Yeah, it's just a really cruel, duplicitous thing to do. Which again, they the, the savagery around journalists to get tips on this. And you're right, it it feels very reflective of our current times, unfortunately. The Herald Express was soon swamped with anonymous reports and tips, some of which actually proved to be useful. On January 24th, a suspicious manila envelope was discovered by a U.S. Postal Service worker. The envelope had been addressed to the LA Examiner and other Los Angeles papers with individual words that had been cut and pasted from a newspaper clipping. Additionally, a large message on the face of the envelope read, Here is Dahlia's Belongings, letter to follow. The envelope contained Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on pieces of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. The packet had been carefully cleaned with gasoline, similar to Short's body, which led police to suspect the packet had been sent directly by her killer. Despite the efforts to clean it, several partial fingerprints were lifted from the envelope and sent to the FBI for testing, but they were compromised, again, in transit and could not be analyzed. Another technological... Snafu. The same day the packet was received by the examiner, a handbag and black suede shoe were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alley a short distance from Norton Avenue, two miles from where her body was discovered. The items were recovered by the police, but they had also been wiped clean with gasoline, destroying any fingerprints. On March 14th, an apparent suicide note scrawled in pencil on a bit of paper was found tucked into a shoe in a pile of men's clothing by the ocean's edge at the foot of Breeze Avenue in Venice. The note read, To whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. The pile of clothing was first seen by a beach caretaker who reported the discovery to John Dillon, who was a lifeguard captain on Venice Beach. Dylan immediately notified the West LA police station. The clothes included a coat and trousers, of blue herringbone tweed, a brown and white t-shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks, and a tan moccasin leisure shoe, a size about eight. The clothes gave no clue to the identity of the owner. Police quickly deemed Mark Hansen, the owner of the address book, found in the packet a suspect. Hansen was a wealthy local nightclub and theater owner and an acquaintance of short, and she had been like mutual friends with them. He confirmed that the purse and shoe discovered in the alley were in fact Short's. Ann Toth, Short's friend and roommate, told investigators that Short had recently rejected sexual advances from Hansen and suggested it as a potential cause for him to kill her. However, he was cleared of suspicion in the case. In addition to Hansen, the Los Angeles Police Department interviewed over 150 men in the ensuing weeks whom they believed to be potential suspects. Manley, who had been one of the last people to see Short alive, was also investigated but was cleared of suspicion after passing numerous polygraph examinations. Also a little bit problematic. Polygraph is historically not great to hang your hat on in terms of uh, testimony. Anyway, police also interviewed several persons found listed in Hanson's address book, including Martin Lewis, who had been an acquaintance of shorts. Lewis's alibi was that he was in Portland visiting his father-in-law, who was dying of kidney failure. On February 1st, the Los Angeles Daily News reported that the case had run into a stone wall with no new leads to pursue. The examiner of course continued to run stories on the murder and investigation which was the front page news for 35 days straight following the discovery of the body. So that will give you an ex- an idea of like how sensationalized this case was. The Herald Express also looking for answers sought out criminologist Dr. Paul DeRiver who was kind of an expert. He was also like very like pulpy, sensationalized and he kind of fueled headlines for a little bit longer after this so-called wall he suggested the killer was a sadist who wanted to dominate Elizabeth Short. He also hinted that the killer might have been a necrophiliac. He said it must also be remembered that sadists of this type have a super abundance of curiosity and are liable to spend much time with their victims after the spark of life has flickered and died. How poetic, Doctor. When interviewed, lead investigator Captain Jack Donahue told the press that he believed Short's murder had taken place in a remote building or a shack outside of Los Angeles, and her body was transported to... Limerick Park. Based on the cuts and dissection of Short's corpse, the LAPD looked into the possibility that the murder may have been a surgeon, a doctor, or someone with medical knowledge. In February of 1947, the LAPD served a warrant to the University of Southern California Medical School, which was located near the site where Short's body was discovered, requesting a complete list of the program's students. They agreed because they had to agree, and they checked out Everyone on the list, but it didn't yield any results. By spring of 1947, Short's murder had become a cold case with no new leads. A total of 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments worked on the case during its only its initial stages, along with 400 sheriff's deputies and 250 California State Patrol officers. By June 1947, police had processed and eliminated a list of 75 suspects. By December 1948, the detectives would have considered over 192 suspects in total. This was a huge, huge, I wouldn't say drain or just depletion of the LA sheriff's and police department's resources, but that will show you how much time that this case took up at this point in LA's history. Sergeant Finnis Brown, one of the lead detectives, blamed the press for compromising the investigation through the reporter's probing of details and unverified reporting. True, but you know, they didn't do a great job themselves. In September 1949, a grand jury convened to discuss the inadequacies in the LAPD's homicide unit based on their failure to solve these cases, especially to solve numerous murders of women and children mostly in the past several years, Shorts being one of them. In the aftermath of the grand jury, investigation was done on Shorts' past with detectives tracing her movements between Massachusetts, California, and Florida, and also interviewed people who knew her in Texas and New Orleans. Again, no useful information. Like I said, so many people were involved in this case, and so many people, over 500, even just confessed to killing Elizabeth Shorts, some of whom weren't even born at the time of her death. Sergeant John P. St. John Another great name. A detective who worked on the case until his retirement stated, it is amazing how many people offer up a relative as the killer. In 2003, Ralph Asdell, one of the original detectives of the case, told the Times that he believed he had interviewed Short's killer, a man who had been seen in his sedan parked near the vacant lot where her body was discovered on the morning of January 15th, 1947. A neighbor driving by that day stopped to dispose of a bag of lawn clippings in the vacant lot when he saw a parked sedan Allegedly with its right rear door open, the driver of the sedan was standing in the lot. The arrival apparently startled the owner of the sedan, who approached his car and peered in the window before returning to the car and driving away. The owner of the sedan was followed to a local restaurant where he worked, but was ultimately cleared of suspicion. But also just such a weird, someone came by, looked at the body, and drove away. Suspects remaining under discussion by all sorts of authors and criminologists and people who are interested in this case were so many people, anywhere from, you know, editors to doctors to Orson Welles to, you know, Woody Guthrie. There are so many people. And so many rumors were circulated. She, There's a couple of rumors that I just want to dispel before we get into suspects. She wasn't burned by cigarette butts while she was alive. There's no proof that she was a sex worker Rumor has it that she was unable to have sexual intercourse because of a congenital defect that resulted in gonadial dysgenesis, also known as infantile genitalia, which is also unsevered. But her genitals were normal, based on the coroner's report. She was never pregnant. There's no proof that she was a lesbian either. This rumor began after Bevo Means of the Herald Express was told by the deputy coroner that Short wasn't having sex with men due to her small genitalia. But again she was having sex with men according to men's reports means took this to mean that short had sex with women and both he and the reporter sid hughes began investigating gay bars in los angeles for further information and Not surprisingly, didn't find anything. The 2017 book, The Black Dahlia, Red Rose, by Pugh Eatwell, focuses on Leslie Dillon, a bellhop, who was a former mortician's assistant. His associates were Mark Hansen and Jeff Connors, and Sergeant Finnis Brown, a local detective, again, who had links and who was investigating the case. This makes kind of sense. Eatwell says that Short was murdered because she knew too much about the men's involvement in a scheme for robbing hotels. Interesting. She also suggests that Short was killed at the Astro Motel in Los Angeles, where the owners reported finding one of the rooms covered in blood and fecal matter on the morning of Short's body being found. The examiner stated in 1949 that L.A. Police Chief William A. Wharton denied that the Flower Street Motel or the Astor Hotel had anything to do with the case, although the L.A. Heralds claimed that it did have something to do with it. In 2000, Buzz Williams, a retired detective with the Long Beach Police Department, wrote an article for the LBPD newspaper The Wrap Sheet on Short's murder. William's father, Richard F. Williams, and his friend, Con Keller, were both members of the LA gangster squad investigating the case. Williams' Sr. believed that Dylan was the killer and that when Dylan returned to his home state of Oklahoma, he was able to avoid extradition to California because his ex-wife, Georgia Stevenson, was second cousins with the governor. And so he didn't have to, again, be taken in for questioning or do anything along the lines of the case. Keller believed that Hansen was the killer as he'd studied at surgical school in Sweden and had thrown elaborate parties attended by prominent LAPD officials. William's article says that Dylan sued the LAPD for 3 million, but that the suit was dropped. Harnish disputes this claiming that Dylan was cleared by the police after an exhaustive investigation, but he was the the kind of one of the top people that they were investigating at the time and had a lot of very strong connections with Elizabeth Short. And also, you know, an LAPD coverup makes sense. It's very sexy I don't know. But let's talk about George Hodel. George Hill Hodel Jr. was born October 10th, 1907. L.A. native, well-educated, highly intelligent, scoring 186 on an early IQ test. And he was a musical prodigy. He would play solo piano concerts at Los Angeles' Shrine Auditorium. He was this, like, wonder child. He attended South Pasadena High School. At age 15, he graduated and went to Caltech early but was forced to leave the university after one year due to a sex scandal that he was involved with, with a professor's wife. He was not the only person apparently fraternizing with the professor's wife. He had apparently impregnated the woman, but again, this is testimony, not sure if it's true, and wanted to raise their child together, but she refused. The affair between Hodel and the woman had caused the professor and his wife's marriage to fall apart. He had to leave. By around 1928, Hodel was in a common law marriage with a woman named Amelia and had a son by her, Duncan. In the 1930s, he was legally married to a model from San Francisco as well. Her name was Dorothy Anthony, and she had a daughter named Tamar. They had a daughter named Tamar. He graduated from Berkeley pre-med in June 1932 and immediately enrolled in medical school at University of California, San Francisco, which he got his medical degree in 1936. After he was established as a doctor, he moved to to Los Angeles and kind of became immersed in LA high society in the 1940s. He loved the dark side of surrealism. He loved surrealist art- artists. He was friends with Man Ray and John Houston. He loved kind of had an interest in in sex and sadomasochism and the darker side of art and philosophy. Uh, this was A pretty popular thing to be interested in in the Hollywood scene at the time, but along with that, he shared other fondnesses that people of the time had, including partying, drinking, and womanizing. Hodel's second wife, he married in 1940, and who was John Huston's ex-wife, Dorothy Harvey. He called her Torero because he had an ex-wife who was also named Dorothy. He purchased the Soden house in 1945 and lived in that property from 1945 until 1950. This is when they think the murders happen. The structure was built by Lloyd Wright, son of Frank Lloyd Wright. And we've both been there. It is a historic landmark. It's surreal. Um, It's cavernous. It's got these, like, rooms. It's almost like a hotel on the inside of it. Because you've been inside
2: there. Yeah. You've did catering there.
3: I did. My one and only catering job was there. I was helping a friend who was having a weed party there. And it was very, very fun. It was fun to be inside of it. It was very strange and just thinking about the black dahlia case and in her being murdered in this place really kind of cold it it's got this kind of like throwback like south Aztecan. central american yeah Aztec. yeah exactly and that was a really popular motif is to kind of take these different think about like the egyptian theater for example like these different cultures and appropriating them and their architecture in a way that it's kind of like you know polynesian and the idea of tiki tiki being appropriated. So in any case, it's an amazing house. There are so many rooms and they all lead to this one courtyard with this looking like this reflection pool in the middle. But he lived there. He was a polygamist there in the late 1940s during the period of deaths of Spalding and Short. He was living with Dorero and their three children, including um, Stephen, the son that would later prove his father, in a lot of ways, to be the murderer of the Black Dahlia. Their daughter, Tamar, lived there. And just a, a revolving door of, of people and lovers came to the this house. So there, of course, is a suggestion that Hodel had a relationship with Short. He left the United States in 1950 for Hawaii, where he married another woman, had another four children. They got divorced. He came back to the States, married legally again for the fourth time lived in San Francisco for the rest of his life, died in 1999 at 91. But he was first under suspicion for the Black Dahlia murder in 1945, so he was on that short list following the death of his secretary, Ruth Spalding, by a drug overdose. He was suspected of having murdered her in order to cover up his financial fraud. He did fun stuff like billing patients for tests that were never performed and protecting various valuable secrets about abortion services that he provided to high-profile people. About this time, Hodel left briefly for China, where he worked with the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. All of this came to light in 2004. So this is stuff that was really buried for a very long time. In late 1949, Hodel's teenage daughter, Tamar, accused him of incestuous sexual abuse and impregnating her, after which she was given a back alley abortion. He was acquitted after a gigantic trial. There had been three witnesses present during who participated in the sex act. Two testified at the trial, and the third recanted her earlier testimony and refused to come forward, the theory being that Hodel had threatened her into silence. The trial had caused her to look like a liar, and she made up the entire abuse allegation for attention. After the trial, though, known or suspected sex criminals in the area were being investigated first for the Black Dahlia murders, so that's where his name kind of came into play. It also came out in the trial that Tamar had allegedly claimed that her father was the Dahlia killer. Hodel's medical degree also aroused suspicion given the nature of the way her body was dismembered and the blood was let out. At least eight witnesses claimed firsthand knowledge of a 1946 relationship between Short and Hodel, then um, back from China and living in Los Angeles. The full details of the investigation came to light only in 2003 when George Hodel Black Dahlia File was discovered in the vault at the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office Huge news. Amazing. Where was this file? Who knows? The file revealed that in 1950, Hodel was the prime suspect of the Dahlia murder. His private Hollywood residence was electronically bugged by an 18-man daLAPD task force during the period of February 15th to March 27th, 1950. The transcripts of conversation revealed Hodel's references to performing illegal abortions, giving payoffs to law enforcement officials, and to his possible involvement in the deaths of his secretary and Short. The DA tapes recorded him saying, "'Suppose and I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy anyway. Now they may have figured it out. Killed her? Maybe I did kill my secretary. Hmm, okay.'" Pretty damning quote. Hodel was also interviewed by a suspect in the nearby June 1949 murder of Louise Springer, the Green Twig murder, though evidence to support that was not available until July 2018. After Hodel died in 1999, his son, Steve Hodel, a former LAPD homicide detective, wanted to learn more about his father innocently enough to whom he was very much estranged from. In that process, he uncovered all of this stuff. The file, the LAPD files. What his dad did, essentially like his practices, his relationships, I can't imagine what that would be like. It sounds very traumatic. But all of that led him to believe that his father was in fact, Elizabeth Short's killer. His investigation began with the discovery of a photo album owned by Hodel, which contained a portrait of a dark haired young woman whom Steve Hodel believed was short. During his investigation, he learned that his father may have been responsible for more than one murder. He also suspected his father of being the Chicago lipstick killer of the late 1940s, perhaps also the Manila jigsaw murderer of 1967, and even the San Francisco Zodiac killer of the late 1960s which again, we know is not true, but that's that's a lot. It's a lot to find out about your father. Short is interred at the Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. After her younger sisters had grown up and married, their mother, Phoebe, moved to Oakland to be near her daughter's grave. She finally returned to the East Coast in the 1970s, where she lived into her 90s. On February 2nd, 1947, just two weeks after Short's murder, Republican State Assemblyman C. Donfeld was prompted by the case to introduce a bill called the Formation of a Sex Offender Registry. The state of California would become the first U.S. state to make the registration of sex offenders mandatory. So all of this, so much heartbreak, heartache, sensationalism, corruption, led to something good. And that's kind of what I wanted to to end on, to give this really fascinating and horrifying case a little bit of positivity, I would say.
2: And you put you put you put your money on it being george hodel as the
3: yeah most i think likely. so i mean the, the the reality is there's a lot of possibility of who it could have been she had a lot of male friends she was around a lot of people who did a lot of things but i
2: but not all of them could have pulled this off as far yeah. as getting away with it and the way the i mean the you know what happened to her mm-hmm. physically i don't think just any Run of the mill criminal or murderer could do that at least alone.
3: No, yeah, and it would have to be. I think, I, I think it's Hodel. There's some other. I mean, a mortician's assistant, a, a nurse, a doctor. Mm-hmm. I think there was always theories that there were more than one person. Which again, I don't have a ton of evidence of, but who who knows? But yeah, you need the skill set to have accomplished what they did with the body. But that doesn't mean it was definitely. You need means.
2: You need mm-hmm. intelligence. Yes. You maybe need you know medical understanding of of medicine and surgery Mm -hmm. and maybe having a proclivity towards the darker side of things doesn't hurt but you need the means Mm -hmm. to do all that and be the kind of person to do that yeah so i think they need and it sounds like i mean according to his son his son pretty much thinks it's yeah yeah also being a police officer, a former police officer is an odd... Uh- yeah,
3: well, he also... Don't, he, I mean, the son had a lot to, more to work with than the other people too. So that, again, that makes his theory and and his case much more compelling too. So yeah, I, I think I, I believe it to be him. But there are, again, that's part of the case. There's so many possibilities, even given what you would need to be to be the killer.
2: But would you say that if, you know, the general consensus is it's if you had to pick someone most most likely
3: for sure not to spoil anything because again these books really the only book that says that it's him is his son's book the other books have these different theories and a lot of them explore a lot of the different theories and some weaker than others these are the really the prominent ones um especially being linked to other serial killers and being involved in a series of of murders or something like that it's hard to say i i can pretty confidently say that whoever murdered the Black Dahlia probably murdered other people. <laughs> the amount of precision, again, the idea of cleaning the fing- fingerprints off, the, just the aside from the medical expertise and intelligence in high society, you, I this is not your first rodeo, kind of a thing.
2: You wouldn't do the, go through this much and be like, well, I'm good. I'm, yeah, I've kind of, kind of uh, I'm done.
3: Yeah, and and also the arrogance of thinking no one would miss this this person. You know, this young woman. You know, kind of lived day-to-day, which is is very sad. But it's it's all of these things, you know, like beauty, glamour, houselessness, poverty, you know, this this beautiful woman with the decaying teeth, you know, it, that is a, kind of an apt metaphor for, for LA and for this case.
2: Some of the things I saw that, that the idea that she was here to be an actress, some mm-hmm. people say that's not necessarily true or it's yeah. not necessarily true because you know one of the videos i took was at john marshall high school in mm-hmm. los Feliz, and she took some modeling photos there mm-hmm. it's in the video and my book mm-hmm. jason horton you know we'll talk about anything for a dollar yeah you know that book it's a, um yeah really good. but but You're she familiar. that those are some of the last known photos of possibly her alive yeah so i thought that was kind of interesting because i think the idea of being like you know, like Peg and Twistle who jumped off the Hollywood sign, mm-hmm. type
3: Totally old
2: Hollywood like her goal wasn't like it's acting or nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, you know, she ultimately died for her love of being famous or something like that. But mm-hmm. when you people move to Los Angeles, that's not you you don't come here to be like I you know, I really I really love, you know, accounts receivable. I gotta get to unless you are into accounts yeah. receivable then that's totally fine I'm sorry Janet. uh yeah
3: please uh <laughs> don't unsubscribe please please, please. <laughs> no no exactly and 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 people moving here just to be close to this to the you know what's happening in la especially in this time very glamorous I I can't I don't think she you know she wasn't like she did not enroll in acting class you know she wasn't a serious actor but she loved the uh, the idea of being around people she loved the idea of like maybe being involved these these kind of amorphous dreams of what it means to make a life in LA and and those are really far away from the reality of it which she realized unfortunately but a really fascinating case really iconic i would say it's one of the most famous unsolved cases in the United States for sure and is is you know here here in our home of Los Angeles
2: Love it or leave it Leave it? No, no, love it.
3: Okay.